because I always said, and I still say, that the one crucial thing about ideologies is that there are competitions over the control of particular language. And whoever controls the meaning of words holds a society by the scruff of its neck. Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle, and this is episode three, which is it's finally starting to feel like a thing now, right? At least to me, and hopefully for our core audience. And yes, we do actually have a core audience, small but mighty. There does seem to be um, a small group of you who I'm hearing from who have watched every episode so far. Watched? You know what I mean. I'm going to have a few more moments like that. But thank you so much to all of you, and I do appreciate the positive feedback I've been getting from many of you. One bit of constructive feedback I'll just address real quick is a few of you have wrote to me to say, get a better quality microphone. Yep, totally hear you. I'm researching that as I'm recording this, and I'm going to put an order in soon, I might also invest in some other equipment. I'm doing my research. If you have ideas or suggestions, send them in. So I do apologize if the audio of last episode, episode two, was a little bit lower than professional level. I think this one should be a bit better. But then going forward, I'm going to invest in some better equipment and do my research and really try, even for a passion project, to get to a professional level of recording. So I'm I'm learning as I go here. Thank you for your patience and thank you for the support that you've shown so far. In this podcast, one of the things I really wanted to share with all of you is a different way of thinking about politics, where politics is something that happens inside you and all around you, something that happens in your own subconscious, in your social interactions, and in everything that you do. Not something abstract, not something that happens in the corridors of power or the news media, but something that's alive in everything that you do. One of the best theorists working within this view of the political, as well as one of the main influences on me that led me to develop this way of seeing the world for myself, is today's guest, Professor Michael Frieden. Michael Frieden is generally considered the world's leading expert or scholar on political ideologies. He's developed many of the big advances in this field over the last 30 years, including bringing a strongly linguistic focus to political theory and developing a new account of what ideologies are and what political thought is. So he's, he's built up many of the big conceptual frameworks in the field, Um, over the last 20 to 30 years or so. Frieden is the author of almost two dozen books in the field, including The New Liberalism, An Ideology of Social Reform, Reappraising J.A. Hobson, Humanism and Welfare, 
ideologies in political theory, a conceptual approach, reassessing political ideologies, liberal languages, ideological imaginations, and 20th century progressive thought, and his latest work, The Political Theory of Political Thinking, which is what we're going to start by discussing on today's podcast. Frieden is the recipient of numerous awards, including the Sir Isaiah Berlin Prize for the Lifetime Contribution to Political Studies. He's also the founding editor of the Journal of Political Ideologies, which, as a completely shameless plug, is the journal I've been published in with some of my own work, and I'll link to that as, as, as well. In our discussion, we start with his latest work, and we start with a deceptively easy question. Or a deceptively, a seemingly easy question. What does it mean to think politically? What's the difference between thinking politically and thinking socially or psychologically? Harder than it sounds, right? We also talk about Trump, Brexit, political ideology in general. We talk about liberalism versus neoliberalism or libertarianism, which I think is sort of becoming a theme on this show, and I might do an episode just on that. We talk about the incoherence of anarchism, the US Supreme Court, and finally the politics of silence. So, without further preamble, it is my pleasure to introduce you to Professor Michael Frieden. I am here with Professor Michael Frieden. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Just before we jump into your latest book, I want to start by just asking you, how do you see what you do now? Because when I mentioned political philosophy podcast, you were very adamant that you were a political theorist, not a political philosopher. How do you how would you characterize that distinction and is that still is that still the best description for what you do? Well, I would de- describe myself in two ways. First, technically, I am part of a political studies or political science department or, the, or, or a profession or a faculty, and I approach political theory as political theory. I'm interested in the political side of things. Uh, uh, and the second uh, uh, argument, or the second answer I'd give you, is that uh, I'm not only interested in uh, looking at good arguments, which philosophers on the whole do. They want to clarify, they want to recommend, they've got ethical uh, uh, agendas that they wish to uh, uh, promote. And I'm quite happy to look at the political uh, with warts and all. I'm not just interested in the ethical aspect of political theory. I'm interested in the in the actual language and the actual thinking that human beings engage in when they think politically. 
And that is the good, the bad, and the ugly. Right, because a lot of, probably most of what actual political thinking is, isn't strictly logically coherent. There's sort of a psychological or emotional coherence to it. But I think there's a real frustration on the part of political philosophers who, of course, want to be very logical about things, that actual political thinking tends not to cohere to that very precisely at all, right? Well, I would have thought in that case, the philosophers must be frustrated running around doing their everyday business whenever they talk to people. <laughs> because people do not speak in a coherent and logical and planned manner when they speak normally. And I'm interested in, in, in the normal, the typical. As, as a student of politics, I'm just not just looking at the, at the exceptional or the elite. I'm looking at that as well, but not only. I'm looking at the normal way that people think when they think politically. I want, to, I, I want to understand when I say, look, this person is thinking politically at the moment. What goes on in her mind for me to say that she's thinking politically, not ethically, not, uh, not sexually, not artistically? What does it mean to think politically? And it's an activity. It's, it's a process that all of us engage in all the time. And that is the focus of what I want to do. And so I'm bringing it back to the social sciences, and I'm bringing it back to an understanding of, of not only the lang language of professionals, but the everyday language of human beings when they engage all the time, about, uh, when they engage all the time in, in, in political thinking, political argument, in ways that perhaps are not understood to be political. But when I go into a restaurant and I say, Wait, I'm in a hurry. I've, I'm off to the theatre in half an hour. I'm, I'm, I'm making a request, a rather strong-worded request. That is the political aspect of my interaction in the restaurant. And, and the waiter may say, very sorry, sir. There's a lot of people you have to wait. And that's his political response. He's putting me back in his place. So when we eat in a restaurant, there's an aesthetic component, there's an economic component, I have to pay the bill, there's a social component uh, uh, because uh, I may be out with friends uh, and, and, and want to enjoy myself, uh, and there will be a political component. Can you please sit here? No, I want to sit there. I'm organizing. So politics is not just what happens uh, in Doric columns and, 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 and in, 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 in domed buildings on Capitol Hill and, 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 uh, or, in, or in London, Westminster. Politics is something that we engage in all the time, just like we engage all the time in economic transactions. And in psychological transactions, we engage also in political transactions at every level. So let's start with a deceptively simple question, which you asked me. So for listeners, um, just as a, a, a disclaimer or whatever, Professor Frieden was my tutor at Oxford, well, it's got to be 12 years ago now, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and this is going to be towards the end of a degree in politics and philosophy. And Sometimes, like, the really hard questions are the obvious ones. And I think you just asked at one point, what is politics? Mm -hmm. And the, the inadequacy of what I had at the time, it, it gives testament to the fact we actually just don't ask this question much, right? Mm -hmm. 
even those of us who study it. So I'm turning this back on, on you now. You gave an example of political thinking. Can you offer a definition? What is politics and okay. what is political thinking? So let me start off first by uh, uh, disclaiming many of the other definitions in the field. Politics is not about one thing. When you look at many, many uh, uh, texts on politics or people discussing or analyzing politics, they say politics is about conflict, politics is about consensus, politics is about power, uh, politics is about uh, agonism, uh, and so on and so forth. Well, politics is about all of those things. It's not one thing. It's, it's a cluster of many different things that come together and create a profile of activity that we then call politics. And so now to put in the small print uh, 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 in, into what you were saying, politics is about uh, ranking collective priorities. This is more important than that. That is more urgent than this. And this can be at the level, at the national level, but it can also be at the private level. So we are always engaged in political activity. So to your account, really any act of prioritization, in other words, A is more important than B, it's more important that I get to the theatre than that your work routine isn't disrupted. Any act of that, that when, when you do that act of prioritization, that is inserting or even just acknowledging the political in a scenario by your account. That is one of the many dimensions of, the, of a particular activity. It has a political dimension, there's a psychological dimension, has an economic dimension. The political dimension, I wouldn't say just every decision. Uh, 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 or every ranking of priorities is political, but when it regards and has has uh, some sort of uh, connection or impact on groups or on collectivities, not just individual actions. So when I think to myself in my bath, uh, <laughs> this is what I want to do now, I wouldn't say this is a political act. But if I think to myself in my bath, uh, uh, when other people are queuing and trying to get in, <laughs> Uh, then there's a political element here of my taking control over territory. I know you're wary of, like, tight definitions to concepts, but could we loosely say political thinking is thinking that, that relates to prioritising or goal-setting within collectives? Okay, I, well, that's the beginning. <laughs> that's the beginning. Well, we've, we've, we've got to start somewhere. You're quite right. It, it has to do with... with with attempting to offer final answers to social issues. And if I were to sum up, if I were to sort of try and draw a thread through a lot of your work, it would be the crimerial nature of that attempting to sum up. Politics, in your view, is the quest for certainty the quest yes. for a final ordering. Indeed. But in Indeed. your view, they're never... It's a journey without a destination, right? The finality slips through your fingers and you have to try to grab it again and again and again. So you have, you have, you have uh, these important finality things like referendums, right. uh, like uh, elections, uh, 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 like uh, uh, various edicts in the political system. They seem final and they're intended to be final or, or the aspiration of those who drive them. Uh, is to achieve some sort of resolution, solution to an issue, but they unravel again, and then you have to re-engage in them. So there's a continuous thread of attempting to achieve finality, 
that succeeds partially, fails partially, or maybe fails totally, and then people try again, or they give up and they try another kind of analogy. And then there, there's several layers to that, right? Before we do, you describe politics as a uniquely arrogant concept. So just to tee you up for this, President Truman famously had on his desk a sign saying the buck stops here. This is really revealing something profound to you. That aspect of the political has to do with with the control over social time. Who begins a particular process? And the political is the one, in a sense, charged with the responsibility or the duty or the function uh, uh, to be at the begin, not at the end of the line of decision making, the beginning of the line of decision making. So the buck stops here is really the buck stop starts here. There's nobody behind the president. That's it. That's the end of the line. Uh, and 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 I I, I give the, an example I very often give when a, when an exasperated parent says, giving up on rational argument because I say so because Fine. I say so is a pure political argument. There's no justification. There's no appeal. This is where the argument begins, and the political, among others, is, 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 is the area where people want to begin an argument that cannot be, I hate to use the word trumped, okay, and it's the control, it's the sovereign control, not over space, the sovereign control over time. You're saying this is what... This, and also of arrogating, because you're also yeah. drawing things to yourself. Yeah. You're you're proclaiming your control over things. Well, there has to be there has to be some area of social conduct where decisions are made, and that is arrogation. Right. Where where decisions are attempted, at least, to be final, that is what we call the area of the political. Could yeah. you could you define arrogation? I, that's why I use it in the double sense. Yes. Uh, 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 it's both a question of, of being arrogant, but it's a question of, of having the, the, the taking unto yourself the ultimate control. That's it. I arrogate unto myself. I take something over. And in our, in our interrelationships, we need some sort of mechanism to, in, in the end, to take control when there's a conflict or dispute or disagreement or multiple ways. There has to be some method of saying, let's take this way or let's take that way. And when, wherever we do that, we are in the area or in the realm of the political. So to go back to the parents who says, because I say so, this, uh, this is a, a, a statement. It's a statement of pathetic incompetence on the one hand of the parents, but it's because the parent has, has abdicated any attempted rational argument. But... It means the buck stops here. I am now the ultimate decider. And but that's, that's necessary, right? I mean, I, I'm not a parent, so I won't make yeah. pronouncements on that. Well, but but, but <laughs> in, in, in the face of irreconcilable differences, yeah. th there is a necessity for someone to just go, because this is the way it is. Right. Well, even if they're irreconcilable, uh, when there are differences, when there, when, when there, when there are, are unclear ways of proceeding, somebody has to be in charge of making decision. That's all. Right. And that is what happens in the political sphere. The political sphere is the one that is in charge of making decisions, whether those are economic decisions or, or, or decisions in, 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 in the area of the environment. Doesn't matter here. It's the decision making. 
the fact that you have an agency called the government or, or, or parliament or congress or you have it an agency whose function it is to deliver final decisions or to resolve issues we we need this in society but what's what's unique what's uniquely political about because not all decision making is political right what's uniquely political well, is wait, wait wait no no actually all decision making is political that is precisely what decisions are. That is the political aspect of our behavior. All decision making that pertains to groups, right? Like, like you in the shower yes. is not yes. political. Yes. yes. Okay. Well, exactly. But, but, but uh, when it pertains to two or three people, it becomes political. So okay. it doesn't matter the size of the group and it doesn't matter where the decision takes place. We engage in political decisions and political interaction wherever we are. So we're having this conversation, right? And, and and you're trying to control the direction of the of the argumentation by asking me certain questions, right? And by intervening from time to time, what I'm saying, I'm trying to respond. Sometimes answering directly, sometimes obviating what you're saying. This is the political aspect of our interaction. I'm not saying right. this is the most important part of it, but this is this is what's happening. We're trying to to organize and sort out a particular conversation. Yeah, as someone who's new to interviewing, um, the, the political <laughs> element of these interactions is, is not lost on me. Um, okay, so here's what I don't understand about this. The political arrogates to itself, and in a certain sense it's self-authoring. When the parent says, because I say so, it, it, that is a sort of self-authoring act, and, and that maps all the way up to... Napoleon putting the crown on his own head, yes, right? Exactly. Like, like just, I am authorizing my own power. Yes, exactly. In that self-authorization, when people think about that, most intuitively they think about it as seizing control over a particular space or territory. Most obviously the nation state seizes control within its borders and exerts power and tries to shut out other power within that. In your theory, the, the seizing control of space and territory is less fundamental than the seizing control of time. Yes. And, and the fundamentally political act is seizing control of a stretch of time from some sort of first authorization through mm -hmm. to the control of future social time. Help, if I sum that up wrong, correct me, but, but why, is, why is time more prior than space? Because uh, time is a control over the beginning of, of, of a particular process. And uh, when the political arguments that one hears so often, whether in, in philosophy or in everyday language, have to do with whom do we appeal to? Who is the ultimate authority? We're looking back at a timeline. We're looking back at people before us or at institutions before us, not just at space, but at who first authorized this particular move? And I would say that the, uh, the, the one, of, one of the essences of, of, of the political is precisely that, uh, this uh, um, uh, recourse to uh, first decisions. It's, I would call it almost the big bang. There's a political big bang. Politics needs big bangs beyond which nothing, nothing can happen because you can't appeal beyond the big bang. Somebody has to be the ultimate decision maker. 
and it's, and, it's, and I think this is ultimate in terms of a, of a time span. So when you have forms of nationalism that 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 uh, talk about control, they're they're saying we have this is our timeline, this is our national timeline. We control this timeline. Nobody else has the right to argue about what our past is. It is imaginary. It may be fictitious, but it is a particular claim to control time. So let's try and concretize this a little, because I live in America now, right? And in the American sense, what you're saying would map on quite neatly to the revolution and the Declaration of Independence. And it's, it's, it's on left and right in America, it's considered yes. an argument yes. to defer to the Constitution, right? Yes. Yes. As if like... And in a sense, that's actually just profoundly irrational, right? You know, so what if people 200 years ago in a completely different society and culture wrote this thing? Why is that pertinent to what is a moral or even wise decision today? But it carries a lot of weight. But I think the American experience offers a really clear example of a political Big Bang. I would struggle to think of one in the UK context. I don't know what your thoughts would be there. Well, it goes back to uh, uh, the divine right of kings in the late Middle Ages, early modern period. Uh, uh, If if you look at the arguments, uh, uh, people claim their authority because they are part of a particular lineage. And the lineage is a lineage which uh, uh, claims the sole authority to make decisions. And if we look at modern structures, it's the same thing. Most countries have constitutions. Most countries have got have got uh, uh, mythical or symbolic founding moments, and they draw their authority from this from this particular history, from this particular moment that then projected from the past into the future controls. In rough, in a rough sense, controls the movement of that particular society. You can always tweak it and amend it, but you 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 control a particular a particular movement through time. And I think societies are always interested. That's why they are, among others, interested in 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 a mythology of their own past and their own continuity. And I stress mythology. And you talk about irrational. I say it doesn't phase me. Mm-hmm. Politics is partly rational. In fact, I'd be very disappointed if it weren't. Mm. I mean, again, there are philosophers who model things on a far too rational, uh, deliberative or deliberate, intentional basis than fits the facts in the field. Okay, and then the, the, the other thing, which is sort of, it makes sense when you think about it, but I don't think people think of politics this way, is it's projecting authority back to a mythical past. But one of the absolutely foundational goals, if you can say something so teleological about it, but but acts or aspirations of political thinking, is the control over future time and the control over future people, and in some ways exercising power over that and who doesn't exist yet, right? Okay, okay, so now let me come in here. We okay. talked about we got about two of the six features of the political so far. Right. We talked about the arrogation, the control, the attempted control over time, or the attempt to be the ultimate decision maker. I prefer mm-hmm. that, that uh, phrase, uh, phrasing. We talked about ranking priorities. This is more important than that. That is more urgent than this when it is used in collectivity. That's another typical 
feature of the political. Now we can add four more. We can talk about uh, uh, um, uh, order and disorder, uh, 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 rupture, disrupt, disruption, and also continuity as very important features of, of, of the political. We can talk about eliciting support or withholding support from collectivities. That's a very, very important feature. Obligation, uh, uh, loyalty, allegiance, trust. These are important political currencies through which, uh, or, or one might put it in a different way, as a fuel without which a political system can't run. So you, you can give it or you can withhold it. That's a very important feature of the political. Then, as you rightly say, we can talk about, about visions and planning and futures which is also one of the one of the areas of the political. The political is in charge in, in, in the loose sense of, of, of offering or creating or imagining in a constructive way or in a harmful way, it can be harmful, uh, uh, certain futures. And finally, we haven't mentioned that word, but it's time to mention it, power. We've gone through quite a long conversation without mentioning power. <laughs> so, let's, so let's talk about power. Yes. What is... Well, let, let me just turn it to you. What is your account? Because, like, when you study this, you do like the three dimensions of power. You do Foucault. You do all that. What's what? Who do you think is making sense on the topic of power, and what's its role in the political? Well, let's not talk about who is making sense. Let Let's talk about what is sensible. Mm. Okay. Uh, Okay, because again, uh, I, I'm not so interested in particular geniuses or individuals or, 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 or intellectuals and the way they present the case. I'm looking at, at the normal manifestations of power. And you find power in, 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 in the need to persuade, for instance. I'm now trying to persuade a potential audience that something of what I'm saying makes sense, I may succeed. Well. <laughs> right, that is the nature of power. So that is, again, they put the political aspect, one of the big aspects of what we're trying to do here. But uh, you also find power in, 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 in uh, various other ways, in, in the use of rhetoric, the power of a newspaper, what happens on page one, the decision, what to put on page one is an act of, of extraordinary power. This is the most important thing that happened yesterday, says a newspaper. What's on page seven or page 11 is less important. We want you, when you pick this up, that's what you want to see. We are trying to influence and control what we think you ought to know about what happened yesterday. Right? And then there are, of course, the, the, the uh, less uh, pleasant aspects of power in terms of threats and menace. But I want to say that power is also a very, not only positive and necessary aspect of political activity, of human activity. We cannot, we cannot survive uh, unless somebody says, let's do this or let's not, not do that. Somebody, again, has to make decisions. And this links up with this earlier idea about, about politics as, the, as the, an attempt to offer ultimate decisions and, and ultimate control over decisions. The only reason I mentioned the, the thinkers that I did is not to say, well, because someone with a big name said it, it's right. It's more to just offer a reconceptualization of the different ways power is operative, right? Because mm -hmm. 
I think most people think of power as in the first thing that we talked about, which is decision-making and prioritization. But then beyond that, there's also, I'm using Luke's formulation here, but then there's also a gender setting. And if we're choosing between A and B, who decided on A and B? But then more foundationally, but arguably most importantly, there's the power over the underlying concepts and categories and emotions and ways we interpret social reality yes, that yes. would inform why we'd even go for A or B and why we'd think of it as a binary choice, which one yes. we would intuitively prefer. The cultural what... frameworks of which we are part are some trapped in sometimes. Right. But there's, and there's another aspect of power, which is the disruptive nature of power. Power is disruption. Power is rupture, which is very, very important. Uh, uh, again, this is not entirely negative. Societies have to be shaken up from time to time. Somebody says, let's change the way we're doing things. This is wrong. This is sleaze. This is corruption. We have to change this. So, 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 so power is also an attempt to disrupt certain practices, certain social practices, and introduce new ones. You've got anarchists, for example. Right. Well, anarchists are actually, uh, uh, it, it's a bit of a contradiction in terms, a anarchists are highly political Animals. Yeah, let's just talk about this for a minute, because as a card-carrying member of the far left, I do sometimes find it that we're a little confused in how we use language. So for one thing, we say we're against power, and I think what we mean is we're against oppressive or domineering power, and we're for a society in which there is no power, but actually what we're doing is exercising one type of power against another type of power. Precisely. And there is, there, 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 it seems difficult to imagine, maybe even at a conceptual level, that you could have a group of any sort without any exercise of power in it, right? Indeed, indeed. And I agree entirely, yes. Uh, and and uh, the, the recent... Uh, a recently uh, common phrase, anti-politics, is itself highly political for the very reasons that you've just suggested. Yes, right. I just pointed out a conceptual confusion of the left. On the right, there's this idea that withdrawal from or disdain for the political system is just that. It's a withdrawal as, a, as opposed to, to moving from one type of space to another, because as you say, the withholding of support is in itself a political act, right? Yes, but, but, but what you're talking about now is, is, is again what people typically understand by politics, something that happens in, 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 in particular systems with, within societies, systems that, that in everyday word, everyday language you say, this is, this is politics, this is the political, very often with a negative connotation. And I'm saying this is only a small part of what politics is. Politics is, 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 is the engagement of people with each other for the purposes of, 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 of organizing, for the purposes of deciding their futures, for the purposes of, of, of making choices uh, uh, between different options, uh, for the purposes of arriving at, at conclusive uh, uh, resolutions of issues and so on and so forth. And this happens at all levels. So, so, so uh, uh, we're not just talking about the, the uh, as I said earlier, not just about macropolitics, we're talking, and I think this is something I'm increasingly interested in, about the micro-nature of politics, the, the, the small print of politics, the interaction that happens all the time when we try to 
engage in all these things, when we try to exercise power, which can be in a gentle way. So you're talking, and, and, and rightly so, you're talking about particular forms of, of semi-institutionalized power, mm. the power of, of the left, the power of the right, the, the use of the state. The state is just one small component of the vast area of political interactions uh, and, and increasingly uh, shrinking in, in a way. So, Multinational corporations exercise more political power than the state in various uh, situations. You you think we're at that point now where where sort of wither the state that the nation state is is recessive? Is it? It's it's competing on on on, on at least two levels. It's competing uh, with with air with layers that are above the nation state and below the nation state, and more and more so below the nation state with various secessional tendencies within societies, and it's competing with other types of mega institutions and structures that wield enormous power. And the power, by definition, is political. Mm. It's economic power, it's political. I think people miss this, right, is that one of the things on which the economic libertarian right seems to be confused is they seem to equate power straightforwardly with the government and the more you take power from the government, that the, the, the necessarily there's less power, therefore there's more freedom, as if it's just this simple equation. But you, who are you taking that power and giving it to, right? Yes. And what, what you're usually doing is when they say we want to shrink the government and decrease government power, there's a, there's a hidden side to that, which is we want to increase corporate power or the power of the marketplace yes. or you know whatever yes. you might have. It's not just reverting to the people, as yes. it were. Yes. I mean, uh, let me give you an example that is, of course, exercising people in Britain has been for the past one half years, Brexit. So Brexit had this this slogan, take back control, for heaven's sake, take back control, as if anybody has complete control over their own lives, whether an individual or a group or a society, as if it is desirable for everyone to have complete control over their own lives, Heavens, I wouldn't be able to cope if I had to make all decisions on my own and not have some help from my wife, from friends, from, 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 from colleagues, and so on and so forth. I don't want to take back control completely. Up to a point, yes. So there's the mythology of complete control. No, there is no complete control because we are living in complex, intersecting and in, 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 in interactive uh, uh, societies and, and subgroups. Uh, of which we are all a part, and we are deeply indebted and enriched by that interaction. So uh, uh, it is sometimes very beneficial to share control rather than to take back control. I did actually want to get your your view on the Brexit and the Trump thing, and here's, yes. here's why, because I think in some ways it, it's a very practical, real world sort of denunciation, not denunciation, but like counterpoint to some of the myths about political thinking that I remember talking about you with you, you know, 10 years ago or so. Specifically this, we haven't talked about ideology yet, but the idea that we're sort of at the end of the ideological era, that like constitutional, liberal, market, representative, democracy, like that whole mishmash has basically won and everyone's signed up with this now. And your it's point of thesis. Yes. But it, it it seemed steadier than perhaps it was, right? And mm-hmm. 
I think your view was always, even if one particular form of ideology or like political expression is ascendant within government or within elite control, that doesn't mean that other ideologies have ceased to exist at the level of belief, even if they're dormant. And mm. I think what we've seen with Brexit, but I, th I would say even more so with Trump and some of the just over-calls to, to, to racism, essentially, and to reclaim our country, where R is clearly being understood in race and class terms, is what you're seeing is profoundly illiberal ideas at their root, at their values, are really, really popular with a minority of people. Get them out. Demonize. Have this group of people below us. Have them less than human. Get them out of our country. Round them up. There is, there is a large minority who love this sort of stuff. I wanted to get your point of view on this, because I think you've been saying for a while now, just because there's a, a elite or government ideological hegemony doesn't mean there's actual ideological hegemony. And I think, I mean, the worst fears haven't come true yet, but you really did get this sense when Brexit, when Trump happens, of sort of capital H history awaking from its slumber. Mm -hmm. But there was really a sense of like, Professor Frieden was right. No, the, the, these sorts of ideologies are not dead. They're just dormant and they can reawaken. With a snap of the fingers, uh, one realizes how, how shallow the, sometimes the, the, the veneer of, of civility is in societies and how easy it is to breach it. But, but yes, uh, so, so I, I, th I think you're, you're quite right, and, and thank you for remembering what I said 10 years ago. Uh, that's very <laughs> flattering. <laughs> but... Uh, Yes, uh, so, so I mean, you, you've raised a number of issues. First of all, ideologies are always with us. And if we didn't have, and, and I'm speaking about ideologies as, as not, not, not in, the, in the, the sort of totalist sense or in the doctrinaire sense, but as particular views of the political and social world, they're always with us. We can't not have ideologies. Uh, 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 and if somebody doesn't have an ideology, that means they've, they've switched off. Uh, so, 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 so that is one one kind of problem. And uh, uh, but, but with with uh, what's happening with 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 Brexit, Trump, populism is a particular interesting phenomenon, and it's 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 the rise of of a uh, uh, particular terminology or language. Because I always said, and I still say that the one crucial thing about ideologies is that there are competitions over the control of particular language. And whoever controls the meaning of words holds a society by the scruff of its neck. And what we are seeing now is a battle over the control over words. So you have in the UK people saying the will of the people, the will of the people, 51.9% incidentally. <laughs> and I have to say in brackets that when Erdogan in, in, in Turkey uh, won his referendum last year by an almost identical majority of 52 to 48, the British extreme press wrote narrow majority. But when the referendum here had the same majority, they said the will of the people. And, and, and this is an, is an attempt to actually to totalize the will of the people, to, to create it as, as, as a unique form. And that is non-democratic in a very interesting way. It's non-democratic uh, because uh, it is like fast food. It's, it's an immediate reaction, the immediate reaction like, like Trump's tweets. 
there's no reflectiveness. The essence of the democratic process is not winning votes. The essence, uh, the, the essence of the democratic practice is in two things. Uh, one, uh, in uh, reflection and taking time to arrive at decisions, the filters through which decisions are taken. And the second is, when you win, how do you treat those who have lost? Not how do you capitalize on your win, but how do you, how do you react in a civilized way towards the people who have lost a particular argument? And that is, again, crucial in a democratic system. And neither of these is happening in, in, with, either with Brexit or certainly not in, in Trump's America. I guess I know you don't like the sort of left-right ideological spectrum, and perhaps we can touch on that. But I think my take on what it, what we've seen in America is that if you talk about a left-right cultural spectrum and an economic spectrum, I know I I know this is a simplification, but the cultural issues trump economic ones, and you'll forgive the Trump word. But in other words, you know. If you're yeah. saying why are why are people voting for things that it's, they understand aren't in their economic interest, the answer is because cultural issues like immigration, like race relations, like not liking Muslims, right or wrong, those issues are more important to them, and they're just prioritizing. They're voting on what they think is morally salient, even if it's morally obnoxious. Yes. Well, I mean, you see, and, uh, and that's there's another difference here is is that the United States is predicated on 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 a myth, on a founding myth, which gives it a, a spurious and artificial unity, right? European European societies grew out of immense struggle and 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 and, and upheavals and changes, and we're used to this. We're used to the 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 the, the natural uh, natural is perhaps a, uh, a dangerous word, but the the normal pluralism. Of societies, we're used to that. Whereas the, the United States has got one extraordinary, uh, strange, but very, very helpful mechanism called the Supreme Court, in which a bunch of highly partisan individuals who are who are put into office uh, on the basis of their political views and their political masters suddenly assume the mantle of impartiality. And this has to work. This myth is one of the few things that's holding together this this vociferous nature of American society. We have nothing of that sort in any European country. So this is both, uh, I think, one of the great functions of the Supreme Court is to create this, this myth of a, a supra-political wisdom and knowledge and agreement and, 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 and channeling of, 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 of dissent. Uh, uh, but, but on the other hand, it just papers over something much more fundamental and it and in so doing it papers over the fact that it itself is a political body the supreme court in the united states is a highly political body it is elected it is it is nominated by presidents it is nominated on a partisan basis and then it suddenly through some magicking becomes uh, 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 this impartial uh, body that controls the nature of the American constitution and gives voice equally to all Americans, which it does not. Now, we, as I said a moment ago, we don't have anything of the sort in Europe. We are used to muddling through into changes, the ups and downs, and we don't have the need to have this, this supra-political myth that keeps us together. And that, I think, makes for a great difference between both sides of the Atlantic. I want to move on from contemporary politics because it's depressing, but... Um... 
One, one final thought on the Supreme Court is I think historically it had, like you say, the myth of neutrality about it. Like historically the Supreme Court's always had very, very high approval ratings. That is going down now. But I think it's got to the point where that extreme decisiveness it can wield has become really toxic in regular elections because we're kind of in like a winner-take-all stakes when it comes to control of the Senate and control of the presidency. So if you ask your average conservative Christian why did you vote for Trump, who is who gives every indication of, and I mean really every indication, of just being the, the person in the world who has the least regard for Christian virtue and ethics, right, at least in a nominal sense. He's just adulterous, narcissistic, um, a bully and proud of being a bully, concerned with wealth and status above. Anyway, I could go on. But why did they vote for him? They'd say, well, because there's going to be a Supreme Court seat or two up next term. And if we lose another seat on the court, we will never appeal Roe versus Wade. We will be stuck with um, the, the gay marriage ruling forever. We will be stuck with the Civil Rights Act and affirmative action forever. In other words, and this was actually a correct utilitarian logic on their part, if you grant certain worldview assumptions. Mm -hmm. If these issues are important, you know, if abortion right, you know, opposing abortion, mm -hmm. cultural issues, gay marriage are that important, then yeah, if they lost another presidential election or two, it's essentially game over for them because of how decisive the Supreme Court can be. Yes. But that but that meant that people were voting for someone they were self-aware that they were voting for someone who was manifestly inappropriate for and undesirable in the office. And they knew they were doing it, but mm. what they would say is just utilitarian. Look, the stakes are just too mm -hmm. high here. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so it's the Supreme Court has actually, I think, had a really poisoning effect on our democracy mm -hmm. recently. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I entirely agree with your analysis here. I think this is, this is, this is very, very uh, true and very, very sad. Okay, let's let's move back to ideology, which we haven't talked about yet, and has been um, uh, just this is this is your thing, right? So you talked before. You said whoever controls what words mean essentially controls that. That's really the end game for what political belief systems. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we can say what they're aspiring to do, as if they have agency, but like. Mm -hmm. This is their function, is to control language. Yes. This seems really counterintuitive to most people. Most people think political ideologies aim at policy ends. <laughs> yes, but they aim at policy ends through controlling the meaning of political words. Uh, uh, if I say uh, um, consensus in Britain about the welfare state in the 1950s, Everybody was in favour of, of, of distribution of wealth, of, 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 of unemployment insurance, of health insurance. But then you go down, you'd have with a magnifying glass and look at the small print and you see the difference. The word welfare and welfare state meant totally different things and was used in a totally different sense. For the, for the Labour Party, it meant uh, 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 more social justice and, 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 and uh, solution to problems of poverty. For the Conservatives, it meant social peace. Uh, and uh, an attempt at at stabilizing the system. 
both use the same word in two different senses. And uh, you have ostensible consensus, but actually a great dissent because they're using the same policies for very, very different ends. So you can have on the surface agreement about policy or partial agreement about policy, but the end product of that policy for each of the two camps is completely different and they see it in different terms. And therefore, whoever can control the meaning of the term welfare state and pull it in this direction or that direction has got the upper hand in this particular debate. Let me, let me give another example from contemporary American politics that might be intuitive to American listeners. Is um, It's pretty clear, right, that when we talk about race, the, the, the language we use is sort of what's going wrong in that debate, in that, say, just the word racist clearly means something very different to conservatives than it does to liberals. So to conservatives, it's quite a narrow definition that is essentially the self-conscious belief in the superiority of your own race, right? Mm -hmm. If I think white people are better, then I'm a racist. Mm -hmm. Whereas liberals use it in increasingly diffuse ways to mean the way institutions can deliver unequal outcomes across different populations, or even like subliminal bias or something like that. So when liberals say America's a racist country, what they mean is its institutions are delivering unequal outcomes. What conservatives hear is America's an evil white supremacist country. And these are just different different conceptions, right? Yes. But yes. whoever could get a conception through and use it in a way that was intuitive to everybody yes. would yes. automatically win, right? They'd yes. automatically lead the debate. Yes. I'll give another example. The phrase, the liberal world order. Right. People talk about the liberal world order. Liberal world order? You must be joking. Uh, this liberal world order is run mainly by conservative and sometimes authoritarian governments. There's hardly a liberal government there. The liberalism that this liberal world order uh, uh, is supposed to promote is a very, very minimalist liberalism, only about uh, 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 minimal political rights, nothing about social rights, about environmental rights, where, which is where liberalism have, has moved on over the past 30, 40 years. Uh, and uh, uh, it, it's, it's the, there's a confusion here between the system of states and the system of governments. States, states don't have ideologies. Nations do. Governments do. States are particular structures. And uh, to talk about the liberal world order, therefore, creates a, an illusion that there is something particular, even, even uh, justifiable or positive, about the world order as it is now run. Could we maybe quickly cover the distinction between liberalism and libertarianism or neoliberalism? Because yes. I think this is a point of confusion for both people, because both ideologies have a conception of the individual, both ideologies have some sort of conception of freedom, but yeah. there the similarities end, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, liberalism, like most uh, 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 well-appointed ideologies, is a complex structure consisting of a number of ideas. Libertarianism shrinks this down to a minimum of a particular conception of liberty. And we must make a distinction here between 
a concept and the various conceptions of a concept. Right. So if you have the concept of liberty, you can have different conceptions. You can have an, a libertarian conception of liberty, which means we don't want any government intervention. People should be allowed to do almost whatever they want to do if it doesn't harm others. And then you have a liberal conception, a modern liberal conception of liberty, which places it in certain uh, a, a framework of, of progress, a framework of individuality, of the growing, of the drawing out of the of the potential and possibilities of individuals, a sort of uh, 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 maturing, a, a, a cultural and political and individual maturing that uh, the state doesn't impose on you, but the state creates the conditions under which you yourself can flourish. And that is, uh, uh, I would say, the welfare state liberalism as distinct from the libertarian uh, view of what liberalism is, which is very, very minimalist, very, very thin, and 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 rather emaciated. I like the word emaciated. I think with like the libertarian, it sometimes gets called classical liberal, but that's sort of a bit of a historical misnomer. Mm-hmm. I think its simplicity is its attractiveness, right? Like it, it, it enables you to get two or three ideas in your head, yes. government bad, markets good, yes. liberty yes. great, and you think you've understood the world. And it, you know, turns out the world's actually a little bit more complicated than that. Indeed it is. You know? Yes. Uh, and again, that's unfortunately... That's the, the weakness of, 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 of complex liberalism is that it can't be sold in a few catchwords. You know, this is exactly the point. It's what I, I call the fast food ideology, the, the, the ideology of libertarianism, the ideology of populism. It goes straight to the guts. It doesn't go to the head, right? right. It creates certain emotions and, and it acts very fast, like an injection. And, 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 and it's again what I said earlier, this lack of reflexivity, of reflectiveness, which is so important when you try to develop and hone an idea and, 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 and convince other people of its merit. Whereas libertarianism uh, and populism in a very different way are, are very short-term, immediate responses that, that tick certain emotional boxes in individuals and create fantasies. That's something we haven't yet discussed. Uh, uh, imagination is very important to politics. Fantasy is a perversion of imagination. And people engage in fantasies of what the political can bring, whether this is Trump right. or this is Brexit or various other examples one could find across the world. Right. Let's let's finish with the ideology. So you made the distinction there between a concept and a conception. So let me see if I've got this right. For any word, we're all sort of natural nominalists, right? We think there's a set definition to each word, whereas in fact it's more like a web of potential connections to other words. It's not that words don't have meaning, it's that the meaning's more diffuse and less pinned down than we intuitively think. So for liberty, we've been talking about liberty can relate to autonomy, it can relate to democracy, it can relate to just sort of lack of interpersonal constraints, it, it can relate to... All- emancipation, for example. Yes. Um, it, it could be that there's just a, not any number, but a huge number of paths that you could take out. What a conception is, is to commit to a specific path, right? It's saying we're going from liberty to self-realization, or we're going from liberty to rule of law, 
and this is what we mean by it. And it's then mutually defining because you've got the path back. You can go back yes. from rule of law to yes. liberty. And so in your account, the fundamental action of political ideologies is to take words that could mean a lot of things, narrow that meaning down, and then... Decon decontest them is the word I use to, yes. to, to end the contestation of the, of the, around the meaning of the word. And decontest them. And then exercise, yes. Yes. yes, and then exercise power over society yes. as a result. Indeed. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yes. So, so uh, if you take uh, uh, something, I'm in favour of equality. Right. You say, excuse me, can you can you elaborate on this a bit? Uh, there's mathematical equality, which is identity. There's equality of of of, of uh, merit. So there's equality of need. But you can't have all these equalities at the same time. If you distribute uh, goods according to equality of merit, you can't distribute them at the same time according to equality of need. So if you choose which conception of equality you want or you prefer, and imagine this as a concept having a spare, a pile of spare parts of conceptions, you can only take some of them into the concept because some of them contradict with other of the conceptions. So ideologies make a choice here among which conceptions to contain within their remit and which to leave out. No conception of, of liberty or of equality can hold all the meanings of those words at the same time. There's no sentence which can reconcile equality of absolute equality and equality of need and equality of merit uh, and so on. Uh, because they are in some of them are in zero sum relationship with each other. So ideologies, they decontest the meaning. They say, I, this is what I mean by equality. No, that is what I mean by equality. And there's this debate or discussion again in their attempt, in their attempt to, to, to create sort of determinacy or permanence to a particular meaning of a word. And, and if you look at the great ideological systems, past and present, you see that to a large extent there are these competitions over an attempt to decide which conception has the upper hand within the range of concepts that this ideology deals with, justice and equality and, and democracy and, 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 and so on and so forth. One final question on this is this, to what extent do you think, because I think when we're talking like this, people are going to imagine this is a thought process going on at a very high level of some like academic scholar or government official trying to decide these things. But actually, this is a process that's going on in all of our heads, granted mm -hmm. at a largely subconscious level. Mm -hmm. And I'll put it to you this way. I find it really weird how counterintuitive most people who work in political philosophy or political theory, I should more properly say, find this. Because... When I you remember this the the paper you helped me on and we we published in your journal, when I was working on that, the just real quick the paper I'll link to it was just like can we do surveys can we look for these conceptions in the general public, people mm. didn't expect to find them. They said yes, but people don't have the the most common response I got is people said the general public doesn't have the political information level to have this advanced thing going on in their head. 
And I said, you're missing the point. What by information level, you mean they don't have detailed policy preferences, but that they don't. But they know that they feel a certain way about things. And just if you track your own political reaction to anything and just notice what happens in your head, and you can see this introspectively, you're seeing what you described. So real quick, if you go for a job interview and they say, you know, you're in a room with a bunch of people and they say, all the women can leave, we're only hiring men, you would have, or one would hope you would have, an immediate gut reaction that something's gone wrong. Mm -hmm. And you would express that by a political concept would appear in your head. And mm -hmm. it would appear in your head from your subconscious mm -hmm. in a way that is as subjectively mysterious to you as what I'm going to say next. You would say that's not fair. Yes. Now, that's I, a very important point that you've raised because uh, ideologies are partly unintentional and subconscious. You're quite right. Uh, uh, but uh, nevertheless, uh, 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 it's important also to realize that ideologies happen at every level of human behavior and interaction. Right. All the time, we, we and and very often, opinion opinions and opinionated opinions rush in where facts fear to tread. Uh, 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 for all of us, myself included, the vast areas of policy making which I know nothing. That doesn't mean that I don't create my own positions and opinions and policies which are formed by my own predetermined or, or uh, that's the wrong word, word to use uh, pre pre organized. Uh, 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 me mental pictures that I have of the world. I, I know roughly what I want in my life, roughly, and 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 the, the sort of society I want. So, so whenever there's a new situation, I I try to integrate it into the existing gestalt, into the existing structure, and and we do this all the time. You don't have to be educated. You don't have to be uh, clever. Uh, you don't have to be a member of of, of this or that. Elite is completely unimportant. What, but what we're saying, though, is in a sense you just feel a certain way about things and yes. you express that feeling yes. through these particular yes. concepts. Yes. And, and it's necessary because you're at a political level, you're going to encounter choices that you've never encountered before yes. and never yes. even conceived of before, yes. but we still feel a certain way about Indeed. them, right? Indeed. And, um, we have, and we have these parallel languages. We have language of journalists and language of politicians and the language of academics and the language of people around the dinner table and the language in the pub, right? All these are discourses in which the same things happen, but you have to translate one into the other. No, no, none of them, no one of them is, is superior to the other. They use different formulations and different types of discourse to arrive at very, very similar areas of, 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 of understanding, of political and ideological understanding. But, yeah, and most, I think most people, most political theorists, most of the time, have it the wrong way round, right? They think people start with policy preferences and then use values like liberty to justify them. Mm. But if you notice what's happening even in your own head, it's the other way round, right? Mm. If you react to, let's just think of a policy choice we've never even considered before. Should Starbucks be allowed to sell human organs? Right? We've never even thought of this. But you have a reaction to it. Something about it goes, wait, hang on. And then you're going to come up with a value. And you're going to work backwards from that value to other values and then arrive at a conclusion. But the point at which you go, the organ trade should be regulated 
and should not be in commercial hands. That's actually the last thing that happens in your head. The first thing is the gut reaction, then the putting a value to it. And should and, not be supplied with the free cup of coffee. Yes, well, maybe it's a trade-in thing or something. I'm working this one out as I go. <laughs> but we're, we're kind of, it seems to me at least, in the process of like perpetually not noticing how we actually think about this stuff. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. We, yes. We're, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. We, we think and we don't think about this stuff, but we don't always articulate to ourselves what we think. But as you rightly say, it, it, the articulation happens uh, uh, at level of, 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 of emotions, at, at, at level of, of, of intuitions, one might say, although I'm very careful about using that word, uh, and, and, and at the level of, of, of silent understandings. Mm. A silent understanding. Silence actually is quite an important part of the way we interact. So this is completely, it seems esoteric, and it's a weird thing to close on, but we're coming up on an hour. Why don't we close with the politics of silence? That's, that's the book that I'm currently writing, in fact. Really? Silence and political theory. You've been threatening to write this book for... It's now being written. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Um... So tell us about the politics of silence, then. Uh, well, well, I think uh, uh, within uh, political discourse, the, the unconceptualizable and the unspeakable and the unthinkable are very important factors. So we, we, we say it's, 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 it's unthinkable that we now burn witches at the stake mm. in, in, in 21st century Europe. Uh, and we say it is, it is uh, what happened in, in the Holocaust were unspeakable horrors. We, perhaps some people cannot talk about them, they were so awful. But we also have the unconceptualizable. So in, 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 in many religious societies, common, I mean, the everyday religious believers cannot conceptualize a world without God. This is, it's, it's, out of, it's out of the area of possibility, right? So there's some things that are, that are unconceptualizable. And, and so there, there are these silences of these things. Nobody has a debate in, 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 in fundamental religious, Christian or, or, or Jewish or Muslim societies about whether God exists or not. It's not on the agenda. It's not a possibility. And we have also unspeakable, unthinkable uh, aspects. And we have something else which is very interesting in, in the polity of silence, the imposition of voice on other people's silence. Locke's tacit consent. Excuse me? Like tacit consent, I can't hear this tacit consent. It's tacit, right? And it's expressed in some other ways, but it isn't expressed. Well, why? Why? Why isn't this a problem? Why haven't political philosophers and theorists problematized the, the, the question of tacit consent? They haven't, they're looking at the question of consent all the time when they look at tacit consent, but never the question of tacit. And when I, many years ago, I went out, uh, uh, I gave a talk in a, at a Japanese university in an environmental department. I was taken out for dinner, and one of the older members of the department said, the most important thing about the environment is to listen to the voices of the war dead. And I kept my mouth shut, and I could have said many things about uh, uh, Japanese soldiers as model environmentalists in the Second World War, but what I thought was in myself, why is he saying this? Why is he imposing his own voice? on the silence of the dead who never said anything, the, the, the war dead in the Second World War, for whom environment issues were not an issue. But there is some reason why, why there's, there's some 
spiritual and, and, and argumentative and strategic importance of imposing his voice on those who are silent. That particular group of people, it gives them an, it gives them an extra cachet, it gives them extra, extra power by using that. And you find the same thing with Brexit. Brexit is not the, the elites versus the people, it's the elites versus the elites. These are the Brexit elite people, you know, uh, uh, the fat cats like Nigel Farage, who was one of the main instigators of Brexit, who impose their voice and speak in the name of the people who remain silent. And that is, I think, one very, very important aspect of the importance of silence. It's also the gaps, what we don't say. In good theatre, you go into this uh, King Lear, a, a recent performance, starts off with, 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 a, with a procession of Lear with his whole retinue onto the stage and it's full of magnificence. It doesn't appear in Shakespeare, but it's, mm. it's, the director has added this into the silence of the play in trying to make a point. So it's the way we control silence and the way we, 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 we direct silence and, and, and the way we interpret silence is a very important part of the way we think about not only about politics but about various fields of human life yeah and silence can also be an aggressive act right i'm imagining i don't even know what the context of this is but a scenario where i'm trying to elicit consent and do you understand me do you understand this order and the person is giving me silence that's yes. actually an aggressive and a challenging or at least a defiant act right yes. The, the refusing ref act, yes. Or, yes. or refusing to answer the questions yes. of police yes. or something like yes. that, right? Yes. yes, indeed. And I'm not talking about deliberate silencing. This is another issue. I'm, I'm not interested in deliberate silencing. That's, that's too easy, really, to analyze. It's, it's, yeah, it's the sort of things that you were talking about as well, this, 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 this refusal to be drawn into a particular frame of reference. No, nothing to do with me. Keep silent. Okay, on the subject of silence, we just ran over an hour. I'm weary on imposing on your time. So let's wrap it up here. Thank you so much for coming on. This was really fun. I definitely appreciate it. Is there anywhere you would like to direct our listeners to go to to follow you or your publications or anything like that? A website, a Twitter feed? I don't know. Do you tweet? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, and the recent uses of Twitter don't encourage me to be one of the Twitter, the Twitterers or tweeters. Um, yeah. No, but well, I, I, I have written, you know, I, I have my very short introduction to ideology, uh, uh, which is a sh shortcut to that. And uh, I have uh, um, recently written a, a companion volume, which is a very short introduction to liberalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, so if these are relatively, I hope, accessible ways into into some some of the issues that that we've been talking about. Yeah, for anyone who didn't or wasn't fully sold on what we said between, because this is a big thing in America, the distinction between libertarianism and liberalism, yes. the short introduction to liberalism is a pretty good starter on that, and it's like eighty pages long or something. It's not, it's not a huge thing. One hundred thirty-five, but okay, in the rough, roughly in the ballpark. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, yeah, I'll, well, I'll link to that when I put this interview up. Um, Professor Frieden, thank you for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you. I enjoyed having a conversation with you again after quite a few years. Yeah.
Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. If you're enjoying these episodes, absolutely the best way you could support us right now is just by helping get the word out. This is a new project. It's a passion project. It's also probably quite a niche thing. I am going for something here that a few people hopefully will love, but not every single person in the world will like. So... If you are enjoying them, help spread the word. And you can do that by sharing on your own social media or by recommending them to a friend. And this is actually something I've seen people doing without me asking them to, is tagging a particular person in a post or sharing and tagging a couple of people in it. And actually that's really smart because because this is a niche thing, instead of just trying to get it out broadly, you're targeting it at the one person you think might really like it. So that actually didn't occur to me, but I've seen a few of you do it now. That's really, really awesome. If you're liking this show, the one thing I would ask to support it would be to do stuff like that. So next week, I'm going to sort of be following on on a similar theme we're going to be talking again about micropolitics, the politics of our day-to-day lives, and I'm going to get involved with a much maligned and misunderstood theory of micropolitics, namely the set of social justice concepts, stuff like microaggressions, privilege, things like that. And if those words are already beginning to turn you off the idea, please come back and give them a second chance. We're going to try and present them fresh. By we, I mean myself and the wonderful Kalyan Mendoza, who is a lifetime human rights campaigner and activist who really has done it all in terms of social justice movements and organising. He's been at all of the big social justice events of our generation, from the Women's March, to the DNC, to the RNC, to Charlottesville, to Ferguson, to the Standing Rock protests over uh, water. He's formerly the field director of Amnesty International USA, and is just a really remarkable, intelligent, and ethical human being. So we get into all of that, And for those of you who have had reservations about social justice because of the way that it's been communicated, Kalyan takes a really hard whack at what he calls call-out culture, i.e. taking a confrontational, as opposed to a compassion-based approach to calling out racism or sexism or homophobia. It's a really valuable conversation, and I really enjoyed it. So, I hope you'll return for that. As ever, thank you for listening. Thank you for, yeah, being interested in this. That some of you have said that you found these conversations really, really valuable and eye-opening is just amazing to me. That's, that's if, if even like a dozen people or even less really got into this, I, it would totally make worth worth all of the effort I've put in. So once again, thank you to my audience, and I hope to have you join us again next week. Mm